Shanae, and my four kids. And uh, this morning, I am going to read for you a passage in Exodus chapter 3. It's what we're studying in RUF this semester, in our weekly worship service on campus. Is uh, ex- the book of Exodus, chapter 3, it gets really exciting. All right, picture this. Mid-90s, South Georgia. I'm in about fourth or fifth grade at the Albany Civic Center. And I am stoked. I'm at my first real concert. Brooks and Dunn. All right, I've been sitting through the warm-up acts. There have been some good ones, but I'm just really excited because the main event's about to happen. The stage has been cleared after the warm-up acts, and the, the road crew has come and been building and assembling this stage. Risers, banners, a big skull of a cow, a, a bull, which is their logo, if you know Brooks and Dunn. And they're getting ready, and I'm just, the anticipation is building. And finally, the band starts to walk out onto the stage and pick up the instruments that have been set out for them. And they start to play. And the lights come up. You can see the guys on the stage, and you're looking, and you're thinking, but where is Kix Brooks and Ronnie Dunn? I don't see them. And then, out of the rafters begin to descend two man-sized bull skulls all the way down from the rafters to the stage. And as the music intensifies, the faces of the bull skulls explode open and out of one hops Kicks Brooks and out of the other hops Ronnie Dunn and they launch into their opening song of hard working man or whatever it is. And it's like, yes. These guys are not just the guys that I hear on the radio. These guys are icons. These guys are legends. That intro, that that way that they burst onto the stage communicated to 10-year-old me and everybody else who filled up the Albany Civic Center something about who those guys were how they were showing themselves, and the relationship that we were going to have. They were the rock stars, and we were going to adore them, and we did. It was awesome. Great show. And I thought about that uh, experience because the passage that we're about to read is when really, in, in, a, in, a, in a kind of a way, this is the first time in the Bible that God takes the stage. Especially in the book of Exodus, the first two chapters, there's a lot going on. As Moses and the people of Israel in Egypt and the Pharaoh and stuff's happening. And God's there, but he's not, he, he's not on the stage yet. You know, they're kind of like the, war, the band coming out onto the stage and things are starting. And this is when God takes the stage. There's no cow skull, but there are pyrotechnics. 
And I want us to think about what it communicates about who God is and how he's going to relate to his people as we read the passage. So listen to this. This is God's word that you're about to hear. It is absolutely true. And we're going to hear from it this morning because God loves us and he wants us to know him. So Exodus chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that, the, saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near, take the sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians." And to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you. And this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Let me pray. Lord, you have revealed yourself to us. You've revealed yourself through the word that we have heard today. You've revealed yourself through the coming of the Lord Jesus. You've revealed yourself as you poured out your spirit onto your people. Lord, help us to see you 
Lord, make us like Moses, who when your presence was there, he turned aside to see. Lord, let us not pass you by. But let us look and see the God who calls us to himself to give us life forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Does anybody have an idea for a tattoo? Thinking about getting one? Anybody? College students were willing to share theirs. I guess maybe it's a little different in this setting. I heard a rumor that that Jonathan was going to get the Combos logo tattooed on his chest because this weekend he's going to run uh, the Combos Marathon in my hometown of Albany, Georgia, where I saw Brooks and Dunn. Uh, Maybe he'll get to show us when he gets back. I don't know. I'm almost 40. I'll turn 40 next year. And so it might be a midlife crisis, but I've got this idea for a tattoo in mind. I've been thinking about it for a while. I don't think I'm cool enough to get a tattoo, but I might just do it anyway. I'm going to draw it for you. I'm not a good artist, but I think I can, I think I can do it. All right, here it is. It looks about like that. Okay? And what it, what it represents, why, why I want this tattooed on my body is because I think this is really profound. This represents, and it wasn't original to me, I got this idea studying in seminary, is that this represents the line that separates... God from everything else. It's called the creator-creation divide. And really, if we, if we could understand that we exist down here and not up here, it would help us out quite a lot, I am convinced. But this is the creator-creation divide, and there's actually one more part to the tattoo, okay? And this tells the story of the Bible. Every religion in the world tells us that we who exist down here We need to figure out how to get out of this place where we are, where there's sin and brokenness and weakness and inability and frustration and anxiety, and we're just overwhelmed down here. And we know that there's something good and eternal that exists. And every religion in the world gives us advice about how to get from down here to up here. Prayers to pray worship services to attend, rules to keep, sins to avoid, foods to eat or not eat, behaviors to inhabit. That, this is what, how religion works. But this is the story of the Bible. 
It's the story of God leaving where He lives and where He exists to enter into, crossing the creator-creation divide, to enter into the place where we inhabit in all of our brokenness, in all of our shame, in all of our inability to meet us there. That's called grace. And we see it in the burning bush. This is what the burning bush is about. It's God showing up in the world. I wonder if I can set this right here. Huh? Nah. It's God showing up in our world. It's God appearing to Moses. Did you catch how it describes God showing up? It says in verse 8, I have come down to deliver. God did not call the people of Israel to come up to him, to get their act together, to get morally right enough to be with him. God came down. Where did he come from? He came from heaven, from that realm where he exists and we are separated from. And he crossed into our world to meet with us. What this means for you is that God is not waiting for you to get your life together. We feel that. Jonathan mentioned it earlier. When we come into a place like this, we feel this pressure that we have to look right. We have to be right in order to be with God. But the story of the Bible is a story of grace. It is a story of God moving from where He is high and holy into our brokenness. He loves to move toward brokenness. It's what He does. The Bible starts... In, the, in Genesis chapter 3, as soon as brokenness enters into the world, if you're familiar with the story, Adam and Eve sin and rebel against God. And what does God do? He comes down and he calls out to them, where are you? And he moves towards them. They understand their nakedness and God kills animals and skins them to wrap them and cover them and clothe them. God moves towards brokenness at the very beginning. At the end of the, and there's a lot of that from the beginning of the Bible to the end. But the very last thing we see in the Bible is God says the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven, this city that God has prepared for us to live in with him forever. It descends from heaven to the earth so that God can dwell with us in his new creation. Heaven comes down at the very end to restore all things. The story of the Bible from the beginning of the end is God moving toward us in our brokenness. He's not waiting for you to fix yourself up. He moves towards you as you are. Dane Ortland wrote a book called Gentle and Lowly that's basically about this principle. I mean, I'm sure that somewhere on his body, Dane Ortland has the tattoo. It's phenomenal. I highly recommend that you read it. It'll change the way you think about Jesus. And this is something he wrote. It's a little bit of a longer quote, but I think it's so good. He wrote in his book, 
that God is rich in mercy means that your regions of deepest shame and regret are not hotels through which divine mercy passes, but homes in which divine mercy abides. It means the things about you that make you cringe most make him hug hardest. It means his mercy is not calculating and cautious like ours. It is unrestrained, flood-like, sweeping, magnanimous. It means our haunting shame is not a problem for him, but the very thing he loves most to work with It means our sins do not cause his love to take a hit. Our sins cause his love to surge forward all the more. It means that on that day when we stand before him quietly, unhurriedly, we will weep with relief, shocked at how impoverished a view of his mercy-rich heart we had. God is not waiting for you to fix yourself up, to get rid of that nasty habit, to change the way that you behave. God moves towards you as you are, to meet with you, to give you grace, to lift you up. I forgot to tell you my first point. That was my first point. We just finished it. But I will tell it to you now. It's that God moves toward brokenness persistently. God moves toward brokenness persistently. He comes down. The second point is that God moves toward sinners purposefully. This is getting a little more specific and maybe, hopefully, uh, getting even a little closer to home. God not only moves toward brokenness, the broken things in the world persistently, He moves towards sinners purposefully. We see this in the way that He relates to Moses. Now, y'all haven't heard chapters 1 and 2 of Exodus. Okay, so I've got to give you a little bit of background about this guy Moses in the passage the guy that God revealed himself to in the burning bush. Moses um, highlights is that he was born to an Israelite woman, Israelite parents, who were slaves. Israelites were slaves in Egypt. She was born into slavery. Not only born into slavery, which is bad, but he was born at a time when the king of Egypt was persecuting the Israelites, trying to get rid of them, in essence, attempting genocide of the Israelites. And so uh, Moses' parents were instructed by law to throw their baby into the river and drown him. And being unable to do that, Moses' mom put him in a basket floaty basket and put him in the river. And Moses floated down the river and by God's grace Pharaoh's daughter saw the basket, snatched it out of the river, found a baby inside and said, oh, I think I'll adopt him. So Moses got adopted by Pharaoh's daughter into Pharaoh's household. It was great. He wasn't killed. He was supposed to be killed. He wasn't. He was delivered. So things were looking up for Moses until he grew up 
and he went out, uh, probably as a late teenager kind of a guy one day, and he saw an Egyptian beating one of the Israelite slaves. And he went crazy and killed the Egyptian. Cold-blooded murder. He realized what he had done, that this was not good, so he dug a pit in the sand and buried the body in the sand. He hoped nobody would find out, but the next day he found out everybody knew, and so he ran away, he fled from his home, and ran out into the desert, and had been hiding out there for decades. So he was out in the wilderness, working as a shepherd, fleeing for his life. He was exiled. He was no longer connected to his family or his people. He lived in the shame of having committed murder, trying to cover it up, but then being found out and having to run for his life. He was a shepherd. He was out following sheep, dirty on the outside, dirty on the inside, full of shame, couldn't go home, didn't know his mom and dad, didn't have any uh, connections. And he was out there alone, and God showed up. God showed up to him. God revealed himself in the burning bush and called to him, Moses... Moses. And this shame-riddled man who had run away for his life and was living in hiding, he said to him in verse 10, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. God said to this broken, hiding Man, I'm going to use you to set my people free. Moses couldn't believe it, literally. His response might be something you you might have said or felt before. Who am I? Who am I that you would use me in that way? You got the wrong guy. How could you use me? This is, this is a response that I hear from students regularly on campus when I call them into service. When I meet with students and ask them uh, what, their, what ways that they think that they might serve God on campus, if they might join our music team, or uh, if they're interested in growing into a leadership position within our ministry, almost always... People say some kind of version of, I don't think I could do it. And it's not laziness. And sometimes they use the excuse of busyness, but that's not it either. What they say is, I don't think God could use me. Yeah, I don't, I've, I've only been a Christian for six months or. I barely know anything about the Bible. How could God use me? 
There's a sense that students carry, and I assume that many of you do too, that your sin and brokenness, your lack of knowledge, your lack of preparation make you worthless to God. How could God use me? Who am I that God would use me? The testimony of Scripture, again, consistently, is that if God has saved you, He has also equipped you to serve in His kingdom. A couple of things to think about, okay? Ephesians chapter 2. It's a great passage on God's grace. Uh, verses 1 through 8 are some of the most gracious passages in all of Scripture. It explains how God relates to people who have rebelled against Him. But in Ephesians 2.10, it says this, For we, the people who God has saved, are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has prepared good works for you to walk in. If you have been connected to Jesus, God has work for you to do. Another place, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 says this, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, through though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. We are connected as a body. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And in that chapter, it talks about how the different members of the body have different uses to the body. You have been made as a member of the body, not just a member who takes vows and enjoys membership in the church, but as a member to do the work of Jesus in the world, to function as his body, carrying out his mission in the world. I had a, uh, when I was in college, I had a job in the dining hall on campus. It was the best job ever. I got to go in right before lunch, put on my hairnet and my dining hall shirt. And most days I got to go to the pizza station and whip up some nice pizzas and give them to students. My favorite was to go to the omelet station, which was uh, where you could build your own omelet. So I would stand there, people would tell me what they wanted in their omelet. I would throw the ingredients in, crack the eggs, mix them in, flip the omelet. Took some practice to be able to nail that. It was very exciting. I went to UGA, and if any football fans are out there, I almost made an omelet for Matthew Stafford. He went to the guy next to me but I was within like six feet of him, so, you know. Great job. The worst part of working in the dining hall, other than the smell that you carried with you out when you went to class afterwards, 
uh, was when you got put in the dish room. If you've ever, if you've ever seen the movie Elf, uh, you remember when Elf gets sent to the mail room in his dad's office. The dish room is, is kind of like the mail room. Uh, it, the, the work is not very fun. It's very hot and sweaty. And uh, you have to clean the dirty plates, wipe them down, put them in the dishwasher, sort and stack, all of that stuff. There's a guy who worked in the dish room. And uh, I never got his story, and I regret that. He seemed like a nice enough guy, but his right arm was completely limp. He probably had a stroke or some sort of brain uh, injury or uh, medical problem. It paralyzed his right arm. His left arm worked fine. He could walk, but his right arm hung limp. And I just wonder... If your view of yourself as being too broken, not knowing enough, not having enough experience, not having the right gifts, might be making you hang limp off the body of Christ. An observer. A participant, but not an actor. And if that's you, I would, I would encourage you and challenge you. It's, it's really sad that you're hanging like that, because unlike this guy in the dish room, you have full function. You have the ability to participate in what God is doing in the world. He has prepared good works for you that you might walk in them. He has empowered you and gifted you with His Holy Spirit. And He's called you to, to go and to do the work. There are a million ways to do it. I'm not going to list a lot of ways, but I mean, there's a, in your bulletin, there's a service day. This is a, a church plant. There is more work to do than can be done. Ask Jonathan or the leadership of the church, how can I get involved? What can I do? Ask the Lord, what have you equipped me to do? What gifts have you given me? Your gifts might not look like other people's gifts, but you have gifts. And God has called you to do the work of His kingdom as you are. Final point. God moves towards His people personally. He moves towards His people personally. We see this in the, in the passage in what He reveals to Moses. He doesn't just show up as a burning bush. He speaks. He speaks out of the bush. He converses with Moses... And one question Moses has is, if I go to the people and, I, and I'm going to do this thing and I'm going to lead them out of slavery into freedom and they ask me what your name is, what do I tell them? And in verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. 
And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This revelation was God telling Moses, and through Moses he was telling his people his personal name. This was an invitation into a personal connection with the God of all power and glory. Imagine this. Okay. Imagine that after the service is over, uh, you, you walk out into the lobby and you're getting your post-service cup of coffee and you look over and standing next to you is Barack Obama. And you say, you're Barack Obama. And he looks back at you with his big smile and says, call me Barry. (laughs) That would be crazy. (laughs) But if he did that, giving you his personal name and inviting you to use it would be to break down any wall that you would have between yourself and the former president of the United States. That would be an invitation into a personal type of relationship with him. That's what's happening. When God says, my name is I am, he's telling his personal name. He's saying, this is who I am. I'm in relationship with. With you. He moves towards his people personally. The the place this this theme is is expounded upon throughout the rest of Scripture as well. God is a personal God. He doesn't stay high and lifted up. Even though he's holy and he's separate from us, he moves towards his people to deal with us where we are and how he really is. We see this most clearly in the person of Jesus. Jesus existed for all time in eternity with God. Jesus is God with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And in Jesus' ministry... He came down, not just to visit, but to dwell with us. To move into our neighborhood. He left the comfort and the safety and the joy of heaven. To move into a sin-soaked, broken, anxious, unpredictable world. And while he was here... He was having a conversation one day with some Pharisees. Now, they were people who were very religious but did not understand him. And they were talking about who Jesus is. They just didn't think that he was. They thought he was lying. Pharisees thought Jesus was lying about who he was. And listen to what Jesus said to these people. 
He said, your father Abraham, this is in John chapter 8, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. And he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus made no illusions. He didn't hide it. He made it incredibly clear that the one who was in the burning bush is the same one who came down to dwell with his people. He moved into our neighborhood to rescue us. I had a, a, I had a pastor when I lived in St. Louis named Kevin. And uh, Kevin was a regular Michigan-born of Dutch descendant PCA pastor. He went off to seminary. Uh, he, he was so overwhelmed by the grace of Jesus and by, by Jesus' transformative work in his life that he wanted to be like Jesus. And he wanted to spend his life not going to some nice suburban church, which most PCA pastors do, he decided that what he wanted to do, what he felt called and drawn to do, was to move into a dangerous neighborhood in St. Louis, in South City. It was the same neighborhood I lived in. I lived there because uh, we, were, we were poor seminary students and couldn't afford to live anywhere else. Kevin was doing fine, but he felt called to serve this neighborhood. And he pastored a church when we were there. Uh, that was made up of people who lived in that neighborhood called New City South. The church was made up of refugees from all over the world, from Africa and South Asia, Nepal, Burma. People spoke all kinds of different languages. It was really an amazing church. And people with real needs were coming to hear the gospel there. And Kevin poured out his life to serve them. It was really beautiful. And one day, two years ago, Actually, we just passed the anniversary, the two-year anniversary I saw on Facebook. Uh, he, pulled, he pulled up to his house after work. And in St. Louis, you park on the street. So he found a, he had to parallel park. You've got to get used to that if you grew up in the South. He pulled up in, the, in front of his house, parallel parked on his street. And he was gathering his things to get out of his car. And... Two guys who were in the car next to him pulled out pistols and shot seven times into his car. They hit him once in the shoulder. By God's grace, it hit the big bone in his arm and did not go into his chest and kill him. He had to spend several days in the hospital. But it almost took his life, it very easily could have. Nobody knows why the guys shot him. His assumption is that they were doing a drug deal, because that happens a lot in his neighborhood. And when he pulled up, they thought he was a cop and started shooting. Kevin narrowly 
avoided being killed because he had decided to move into that neighborhood to serve those people. When Jesus moved into our neighborhood, he knew the risk. And he did not get off like Kevin did. When he moved into our neighborhood, leaving heaven to come to earth, he was put on trial on trumped up, invented charges. He was convicted and sentenced to death and hung on a cross to die in your place. Jesus loved so deeply and he desired so deeply to be in relationship with you that he moved into your neighborhood not just to dwell there but to die there to win you to him give you one more quote we'll close with this from gentle and lowly only as we drink down the kindness of the heart of Christ, will we leave in our wake everywhere we go the aroma of heaven and die one day having startled the world with the glimpses of a divine kindness too great to be boxed in by what we deserve. Jesus died for us so that we can go and lay down our lives for the world. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for your goodness and faithfulness. We give you thanks for your kindness. And we pray that uh, as we've heard of your grace in your word, that we would respond to it. We would believe it. We would receive that grace for ourselves. And we would go out from here strengthened and equipped to serve in your kingdom wherever you would call us to do so. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.